Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this programme we take a look at William Butler Yeats as dramatist and a man of theatre. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the birth of William Butler Yeats, born in Dublin in 1865. Poet, playwright and essayist, co-founder of the Abbey Theatre, Yeats is frequently considered to have been the primary driving force behind what became known as the Cultural Revival. I'm joined in Dublin by Professor Anthony Roach of UCD's School of English, Drama and Film, author of a new book, The Irish Dramatic Revival, 1899 to 1939, by Christopher Fitzsimon, a former literary manager and artistic director of the Abbey Theatre and author of many books, including The Abbey Theatre, The First Hundred Years. And from Budapest, we're joined by Michael McAteer, author of the book Yeats and European Drama. But first, a little of Yeats himself. Though eyes can meet, their lips can never meet. Although they have no blood, or living nerves, who once lay warm and live the live-long night in one another's arms, and know their part in life, being now but of the people of dreams, is a dream's part. Although they are but shadows, hovering between a thorn tree and a stone, who have heaped up night on winged night, although no shade, however harried and consumed, would change his own calamity for theirs. Their manner of life were blessed, could their lips a moment meet. But when he has bent his head close to her head, or hand would slip in hand. The memory of their crime flows up between and drives them apart. Alwyn Fuer there with an extract from The Dreaming of the Bones by William Butler Yeats. I'd like to begin by asking each of you how you came to this world of Yeats's theatre and how your initial engagement with his plays evolved over the years. Uh, Christopher, what sparked your interest in, in Yeats's plays? Well, I was a very busy student in TCD in the 1950s and I went to everything and I took note of everything in the course which was then called Anglo-Irish Literature, can you imagine? And I went to the Sligo Yeats Summer School and I saw productions by the Abbey Theatre who were visiting the Gilhooley Hall. I was very critical. I thought the actors looked uncomfortable in their roles wearing long dressing gowns with cardboardy helmets painted in gilt ink, not well spoken, and I thought entirely lacking in theatrical excitement. So I suppose we thought that we'd do better in our student theatre in Trinity, and we decided to put on The Land of Heart's Desire, The Pot of Broth, The Dream of the Bones, and Purgatory. And Dennis Johnston reviewing these productions on radio. There used to be a radio critique programme on Radio Aaron. He described the first two plays, The Lands of Hearts of Desire and The Pot of Broth as unactable twee. And uh, 
I think he said he was changing his mind because of the way that we had approached these and we hadn't really been into it in a very philosophical way. We then went to a drama festival in Galway and it was a large theatre. Our theatre in Trinity seated about 60 people and we did The Dreaming of Bones and it soared out above the audience unexpectedly. I was in the chorus and I thought, this is not a little chamber play to be produced in Lady Carlyle's drawing room or Lady Fingal's drawing room or whatever it was supposed to be. The only pity is it's so short. You can kind of judge an audience's attention. In a comedy it's easy because they're laughing, but the silence and the raptness comes across to you in a play like this. And it was amazing. And I wondered at the time, was it really the excitement of hearing the local names in that play? Was that that came to them? But I don't think so. I think by accident, really, rather than design, our production reached out and got to a very large public in the way that was totally unexpected. This pathway runs towards the ruined abbey of Cork and Roe. The abbey passed, we are soon among the stone, and shall be at the ridge before the cocks of Ochanish and Balyavelyahan and Grey Ochtmana shake their wings and cry. The dreaming bones cry out, because the night winds blow and heaven's a cloudy blot. Calamity can have its fling. And it's strong stuff. And I then kind of decided... These are tiny gems, and what I was sorry about was that Yeats didn't write something longer. Tony Roach, how did you come to drink at the Hawk's Well, <laughs> as it were? Uh, it was very strange when I first went to the Yeats Summer School and asked for directions to the Hawk's Well. I first really engaged with Yeats as a graduate student at the University of California at Santa Barbara. I had the pleasure there of working with um, Vivian Mercier and Donald Pierce. And Donald Pierce in particular steeped me in Yeats, and both Vivian and Donald stressed the importance of his drama. In the December of 1979, I had the opportunity within the space of two weeks, because I was travelling back to Dublin for Christmas, to see Yeats's plays, the Goo Cullen cycle in each case, first in San Francisco... I stayed in New York for a few days, and in New York I saw another production, very different in style, of this Ku Collins cycle. And it was only later I realised how rare and lucky I was. But I have used every opportunity since then to see productions of Yeats's plays. And the most recent is on the cover of my book, The Irish Dramatic Revival, directed by Kelly Hughes of At the Hook's Well in Sligo. And I remember attending this in 2010... It was like being in a Buddhist temple, and it began with the little ding-ding of the bell and ended with the little ding-ding of the bell. At the end of it, I sat there in my seat, as many of us did, in the round, staring at the circle of stones, which was now empty, and not wanting to leave. It was probably most experienced in the theatre rather than on the page, and then I'd follow them up by reading them. And we'll, we'll hear from Kelly Hughes, who directed that production, in a little while. Michael, Michael Tier, what provoked your interest in Yeats's drama? I came to Yeats's drama in a rather roundabout way. I studied for a PhD at Queen's University Belfast in the 90s, where my primary focus was on Standish O'Grady. And I was particularly interested in this idea 
that O'Grady held that the Cuchulain cycle, the Ulster cycle of legends, were rooted in actual history. So this was the subject of my doctoral thesis study and it resulted in a, in a book I published in 2002 on O'Grady and his influence, particularly on, on George Russell and on Yeats during the revival. O'Grady's History of Ireland, his writings on Cuchulain led me on to Yeats's Cuchulain uh, plays. What really surprised me when I came to the Cuchulain plays was how strongly they appeared to me to echo early 20th century European avant-garde drama. I would not have thought of Yeats in those terms prior to approaching the plays. And so that led me on subsequently to investigate this further to see how extensively Yeats was aware of the uh, experiments in naturalism, symbolism, and other such movements, surrealism, expressionism, in the late 19th and early 20th century. It was quite um, remarkable for me to discover just how keenly aware and indeed how many of the plays of Ibsen, of Morris Matterlink and others that Yeats actually attended and, and saw indeed in first performances, both in London and in Paris uh, in the 1890s and the 1900s, and also how important they were for, his, uh, for the shaping of his Irish themes, his mythological themes in the Irish drama. A very interesting point, that, and, and, and one we will return to. Of course, despite the general focus on Yeats's poetry, especially in this anniversary year, his plays are part of a living legacy. And I spoke with theatre director Kelly Hughes. Tony mentioned her earlier, and actress Alwyn Fuere about working with his plays. I first directed Yeats in 2009 for Blue Raincoat Theatre Company. I was asked to direct the piece The Cat in the Moon by Niall Henry, who's the artistic director there. The particular piece was interesting to me because I'd already had the experience of performing The Guardian of the Well in At the Hawk's Well. That kind of opened up an experience where I was able to see the power behind the, the fact that this literary genius was looking for something beyond words. And the fact that he was going to the body to find that was really, really exciting. So then when you started to look at that as a performer, when you changed that into thinking about it as a director, it gave up loads of possibilities. Many people have this uh, notion that Yeats's work is static, that it's almost weighed down by words, by poetry, and that that gets in the way of interpretation, of the visual, of movement. I presume you would have quite a different take on that. Absolutely. Because Yeats was going into a relatively unknown realm for himself, what he was doing for me was creating a lot of space for the artist. When he was talking about a dancer, for example, he was saying, you know, I barely know what I think this should be. That actually opens up a huge realm of possibility. Then you're looking at him collaborating with other artists to find and, and further his ideas. So his structural ideas that were coming into that started coming from his collaboration with other people. Do you have a, a particular audience in mind when you're approaching, as was any text, but in particular Yeats? The way that I think about the pieces, The Cat in the Moon, for example, it's a beautiful, short, concise play. It's extremely well written. It's got this uh, framework that has a ritual of performance that's really very, very beautiful. And um, when you look at the simple happening inside, there's something in it that shows you immediate human truth, but also there's this global scale 
of a more profound nature. What interested me a lot with The Cat in the Moon was the fact that there's a chorus there. And this chorus is a very ritualised group of people who bring into being this space. I suppose I thought about it a lot in terms of the, the spirituality behind the piece. And I actually worked with the idea of the chorus in a slightly different way. I, I distributed the text differently and I looked at the three people who are in the chorus. Usually it's a, a musician, a, an actor, and, and then you had um, the percussive elements in there. What I wanted to do was look at these people like a trilogy so that one person would take the dominant role in the spoken word, another in the dominant of the of the singing voice and then another with the percussion. But then they all actually fed into that themselves. And then the three people became the saint so that the whole space became activated by these three people and the power of that then just became heightened. So what interested me then was how do you actually use the space and the whole architecture of the space as that saint? And Michael Cummins' lighting uh, really, really helped with that, as did uh, Joe Conway's beautiful set. Well, it was a collaboration again between those two people and myself and how we created the whole space together. Working with young actors and, and theatre artists, as you do in UCD, where you're mm. directing residence, do you find an, an openness to, to the work of Yeats? I mean, are young people still interested in his plays? I have a really privileged job in that I get to uh, work with Ad Astra scholars. So these are people who are really talented musicians and actors who come into UCD. What they did initially with the work was I gave them a script. They looked at it and went, oh, God, what are we doing here? Because I don't think the work really, really lives until it's on stage. And it's not performed enough for people to understand the how exciting and how relevant the actual work is. The structure that he was working with then is still really, really impressive and innovative if you look at it now. You know, those transitions when you go from poetry to prose to, to mask work to dance, you know, back to musical instruments to percussion. And he flips through very, very quickly. So it is challenging for an actor and for a young actor that can be really frustrating. But I think it's it's really worth it to keep at it. And then sometimes when you just hit that lovely uh, link between playfulness and discipline, those two things coming together and you're working with Yeats's beautiful language, it can really sing. Do you see a link, a clear link to Beckett's work in absolutely, the work of Yeats? Absolutely, absolutely. Something that, that keeps hitting at me is... The idea that At the Hawkswell was first performed three weeks before the Easter Rising. So the Easter Rising was coming up and that was an incredible, momentous occasion in Ireland. At the same time, there was this theatrical revolution happening with Yeats's work. The ideas, the structures, the spirit of revolution that's in his work is incredible. The daring that he had as well. He had his place in the world as a literary genius. And then he goes and he, he says, OK, but what about the other? And that, that pioneering spirit is really, really exciting. Beckett was known to actually quote uh, the first opening passages of At the Hawkswell. You know, you can imagine how profound that must have been for him. S seeing that theatre of revolution coming out of Yeats and then going and creating his own. I felt when I was directing The Cat in the Moon, I felt Vladimir and Estragon a lot of the time in the piece. And I'm sure that the aesthetic that we actually finally hit on had a huge debt to pay to Beckett.
that really really sit well together as you know those two masters how they how they discover life and language and all things Joyce although I'd say he would have run a mile in the opposite direction and thinking of having any kind of debt to Yeats when Alvin's performing River Run right at the end there's a real feeling of the spirit of Kathleen Nihulahan coming into it with that rise up and a roost. You know, that again, that call to action. And I think that those three greats, you know, Yeats, Beckett and Joyce together, they're, they're calling for a revolution in their work. And that's why I think you, you discount Yeats as a dramatist to your detriment. The revolutionary trinity of Irish literature. Alwyn, as an actor, as a performer, what has Yeats's theatre work meant to you over the years? With Yeats, and when I started working on Yeats's plays with James Flannery, I was amazed that this pioneer of total theatre had been so dismissed by my contemporaries. <laughs> I thought, my goodness, this is like a treasure trove of, of theatrical form. And he was, you know, a true revolutionary. Plus, uh, w- one of the great things I loved about working on his plays was that he disregards the membrane between the living and the dead. In fact, it's such a porous membrane that everybody occupies the space at the same time. For me, it was very liberating as a performer because I find that the vernacular of of theatre practice can get very limited. People talk about character, motivation, story. And Yeats is this kind of teeming world of beings and energies from several layers of existence. So I found it extremely liberating as a performer and, and actually spiritually very rewarding because you get the the energy that it demands to really offer the work brings something back to you that's the only way I can describe it I did the Kuhalan cycle that was the first thing I did with Jim Flannery that was the first uh, festival uh, in the 1989 I think it was I was cast as Aoife but Jim did this great thing where he threaded me through the five plays as a sort of anima figure to Cúchalán, which I think I also love this whole idea that his greatest lover and his greatest enemy combined, which is like the battle between Cúchalán and Ferdia, that's beautiful battle in the Torn. So this this figure who haunts his his psyche and who challenges him all the way along, and then finally she appeared in, in the final play, The Death of Cúchalán, to be with him in his death, really. The following year I did Kathleen Holohan and uh, The Dreaming of the Bones. Uh, they're both extraordinary pieces. And in fact, I went up to Corkham Row to where all The Dreaming of the Bones took place. And peculiarly enough, it fed the work I did on Dreaming of the Bones, fed into another work I was doing with uh, James Coleman called Initials, where there was a whole spiral that took place. And the, the best day we worked it was when we started to recreate the spiral that we had done on stage. So mm. it was quite a beautiful thing. And Kathleen Houlihan, um, I find a fascinating play and I carry her around a little bit because she when I was doing uh, River Run my adaptation of the voice of the river in Finnegan's Wake and the final section where the river speaks as a woman really she kind of was ungendered up till then I always think of it as Kathleen Hulan coming back here and now a hundred years later looking around going what the hell happened well I'm off <laughs> <laughs> What's going on in Temple Bar on a Saturday night? (laughs) Are there particular challenges for a performer in in the work of Yeats? That language can really only be delivered from a quite an elevated place, an extreme place. So he really demands of the actor 
in a lot of the work, obviously being influenced by the No Theatre as well, he demands that incredibly high frequency in the actor where you are, you actually are in a kind of an altered state. And the language can only really work when it's delivered in that way. Similarly, the body has to be incredibly engaged to be able to to work vocally in that way. Also, I mean, I actually I found when I was doing the um, the Kuhalan cycle, I used a lot of cartoon imagery to help me. So, for instance, when I played Brickru, I based him on the snake in Jungle Book in the film. In terms of movement and movement and sound. Mm. I mean, the movement was very internal, you know, so I wasn't really moving like a snake, but it, the snake was in my spine and the trickster, the manipulator was totally, was the snake the, in the voice. The hiss the was in the breath. Yeah. <laughs> Do you prepare in the same way in order to perform the works of Yeats as for any other theatre or does it almost demand a, a different act of preparation? For me, it's different for every single piece I do. And actually part of the work is finding what the right preparation is. I think it probably would be necessary to create quite a sacred space for it. You know, when you're working at that kind of level, that elevation, (laughs) it is a channeling, you know, and uh, that doesn't happen without uh, working hard to open the doors and let it come up through your... It's like the duende. Theatre artists Alwyn Fuere and Kelly Hughes on working with the plays of William Butler Yeats. Many interesting insights there. Tony Roach, could you give a brief outline of Yeats's life and writing to, to set a context for us for discussion on Yeats and theatre? Where, for example, was he in his writing career when he started to show an interest in expressing himself through drama? Poetry came first, but if you look at the work of the early Yeats, early poetically. If you look at the work of the 1890s, he developed a style that gained him some fame, the Celtic twilight phase, which was very dreamy, very evanescent, very lush, verbally lush, and it's one he himself sickened of. I think that desire to progress coincided with the period in 1897 when he met up with Lady Gregory and with Edward Martin, in Durris in the west of Ireland, and they decided they wanted to found an Irish theatre. It wasn't quite his first taste. His one-act play, The Land of Heart's Desire, was staged with George Bernard Shaw's Arms and the Man, and he learned a lot from seeing that. But really, he found that the London theatre didn't want his work, and so at the end of the century... This idea of going into the theatre, both to write as a playwright and to found a national theatre, became very important. And just in terms of his own development, his poetry becomes less lush and more stripped and dialogue enters into his his poetry. But then he also, particularly through the collaboration with Lady Gregory on a play like Kathleen Nicoulihan, he starts to become aware of what happens when you put poetic writing in front of an audience. He says it must no longer turn aside at the lure of every metaphor. You know, for example, it has to just cut to the chase. It has to keep the audience interested. And so he wrote and rewrote and compressed to create a drama. He, he said himself, you know, I think of myself as a dramatist. I need a theatre. I desire to show events and not merely tell of them. And I seem to myself most alive at the moment when a room full of people share the one lofty occasion. And it's in a way the function of the bard that he's stepping forward. To he was really aware, wasn't he, of the ability of Irish people to listen 
people would listen and he also to remember that the poetry for him was something spoken not something read he said the, the job of the poet in Adam's curse he said is to articulate sweet sounds together and so you have a continuum there I also think the isolationism uh, as well of reading poetry rather than the communal experience of, of theatre, which also politicises his work. His drama becomes, I mean, Kathleen Hulhan is very political, much more so than the poetry. I think he wanted a political function for his writing. That desire drove him into public spaces to become a public man, not just a private lyric poet. I want to talk about Kathleen Hulhan in a, in a while, but again, was Yeats drawing and consciously drawing, in a sense, on the tradition of the Shanachie, you know, the, the story mm. at the, the centre of, of so much of Irish culture. I think so. I mean, I mean, I argue in, in the book that, that storytelling is at the centre of Irish drama because there wasn't an Irish drama to revive. There wasn't one in Gaelic. There were dialogues, there were, you know, there were this, that and the other. I think it's one reason why the plays are so short. The other thing in Yeats, of course, is the occult where people gather in, in a room around a table and the ghosts start to speak through you. He wanted something of that transcendence, if you like, uh, that communal transcendence through the theatre. The, uh, the term ritual has already been used. It's going to be a ritualistic theatre. Michael McIntyre, you've already mentioned uh, some of the European dramatists who you say influenced Yeats. Where would he have seen the plays of Ibsen and Maeterlinck? Yeats had seen Ibsen in London uh, in the Avenue Theatre. There were 30 performances of A Doll's House in 1893. So Yeats was very much aware of Ibsen and Ibsen influence. As regards Matterlink, Yeats would have seen performances of Matterlink in London. There, there was an 1894 performance of Matterlink uh, given by Beerbaum Tree at the Haymarket Theatre. Yeats also commented on his admiration of Matterlink's uh, symbolist uh, and esoteric plays in a letter to Olivia Shakespeare in 1895. But the major impact for Yeats in the 1890s was his attendance at the Théâtre d'Oeuvre in Paris of the performance of Axel, this huge occult esoteric play uh, strongly influenced by Wagner that had been written by uh, Comte Lier de Lille Adam. And in fact, he had not completed the play um, by the time of his death in 1890. Yeats attended the performance of that play with Maud Gone in 1894, and he immediately wrote a review of the play in which he said, we are now in the moment of a, a major revolution in theatre a revolution in which all sense of the external objective world will be turned on its head. In that sense, Yeats saw this intervention as the moment in which European theatre at the end of the 1890s was going to reject realism. For that reason, I think he had a deeply uneasy relationship with Ibsen. Ibsen himself had moved from initially a quite romantic and mythical style of drama to a later more critical, realist and naturalist mode. Yet, if you look at a play like Ibsen's The Wild Duck, which was performed in 1894 in uh, London, it actually shares a lot of affinities with the kind of symbolism that uh, was interesting Yeats and certainly was, was interesting Martelink. All kinds of links there. Tony Roger, we've mentioned Kathleen Hulan, mm -hmm. a famous play, as you said, you know, the political play, 
did a certain play of mine send out certain men the English shot and all of that. Or if, if Yeats had saved his lead, would English soldiers have stayed <laughs> in, in bed, indeed. as Paul Muldoon Paul came Muldoon's back version, some, some indeed, time later. More recent one. I want to talk about that and its impact, its political mm-hmm. impact. But before we talk about it, let's hear Alwyn Fuery perform an excerpt from it. They will have no need of prayers. They will have no need of prayers. It is a hard service they take that help me. Many that are red-cheeked now will be pale-cheeked. Many that have been free to walk the hills and the bogs and the rushes will be sent to walk hard streets in far countries. Many a good plan will be broken. Many that have gathered money will not stay to spend it. Many a child will be born, and there will be no father at its christening to give it a name. They that have red cheeks will have pale cheeks for my sake. And for all that, they will think they are well paid. They shall be remembered forever. They shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. All one for there in Yeats's Kathleen Luhulan. Tony Roach, you, you hear the power of, of that piece again in Alwyn's delivery of, of those words. I mean, there's an incredible sense of, of prophecy, really, within that text. Yes, there is. And it's, it's prophetic politically, obviously, but it's also prophetic in terms of Yeats's own development. Uh, you know, if you jump from Kathleen Nehulahan in 1902 to the death of Cú in 1939, obviously the last play Yeats wrote in his deathbed, he says, who thought Cú till it seemed he stood in the post office? And the other playwright and poet who thought Cú Cullen was Porrig Pierce, uh, who was obsessed with the figure of, of Cú Cullen. In both of them, I mean, Yeats and his Cú Cullen plays dramatises moments of failure. The young man's failure, Cú Cullen's failure to drink the water of the holy well and to live forever, his killing of his own son, his death. In Kathleen Nihulahan, there is the recognition that in this commemoration of 1798, which is what led to the play in 1898, he'd been involved with Morgan, Michael in the play is going to go out and he's going to die. He's going to, be, he's going to be dead within days. It was a slaughter. It was a slaughter. And they were strung up to say no more revolution. But the longer term strategy was that they would be remembered forever. And you go straight from that to a political speech like Pierce at the grave of O'Donovan Rossa. The fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And into something similar in 1916, where they are going to surrender, it is going to be a failure. And when they are executed, the public mood shifts and a terrible beauty is born. This was a movement, these were movements of people. The Gaelic League, 
you know, Sinn Féin, the Abbey Theatre, the cooperative movement, there was my colleague PJ Matthews has shown, there was great interlinkage here. If you think of a figure like Borgon, who played Kathleen Houlihan in the original, at one point, uh, you think of her, she wasn't an actress, what she, but she was speaking from platforms to audiences, and she was embodying Ireland. So the boundaries become very porous here in terms of what is performance, you know, and what is theatre. It really is street theatre. It is ultimately designed to be played out on the street. Do we know how much of the text Yeats wrote and how much was written by Lady Gregory? James Pethica is the one, the great Lady Gregory scholar, who has worked on the manuscripts where her Lady Gregory says, everything up to the entrance of Kathleen Hulhan is mine. After that, it's the two of us. But even more than that, you think, well, Yeats writes the Kathleen Hulhan lines and she writes all the others, but it was a genuine collaboration. I would say James Pethica, and I would agree with him, it's about two-thirds as Lady Gregory, about a third as Yeats. The move then towards the establishment of, of the Abbey Theatre, what was Yeats's role as co-founder of the Abbey and how comfortably did that sit with him as a playwright? Well, as anyone who gets involved in what he calls theatre business management of men and women and setting up of plays in all those different ways, they will take you away from the creative work. I think Brian Friel may have discovered that with Field Day. One activity is going to, to draw away from the other, and while it may have benefited the poetry in the long run, the poetry did, did diminish. In terms of his own plays... Yeats was very committed to the Abbey work, and it's something that, that stayed with him all his life. He's always, even when he's in London, he's always reading plays. He's, he comes back to the Abbey over and over again. I think it was very important for him, very close to Lady Gregory and to Sing until, un, until Sing died. But the theatre that developed in the Abbey, as he writes Lady Gregory in 1919, was very different from the theatre he'd hoped for. It didn't go the route of his drama. Uh, it went into a more realistic vein. It went into peasant drama, even a play like Playboy of the Western World. And it's something that there's a tension between the plays that Yeats wants to write and have performed and whether they can be housed in the Abbey Theatre or whether the Abbey Theatre is there serving a different kind of theatre. There's a tension there. Christopher, you were both literary manager and artistic director of, of the Abbey and Peacock Theatres. Was there an abiding sense almost of, of the shadow and influence of Yeats in our national theatre during that time? No, there wasn't. Uh, but uh, there was a feeling that there should have been. And there was a kind of r- unwritten code that we must do plays uh, by Yeats every year. And when I was working there, I was very uh, excited to do that. But I did find a reluctance among the members of the company. Oh, gosh, do we have to do another set of plays by Yeats? In 1987, R- Ray Yeats, who was working as a young director, in the Abbey, uh, directed Calvary and the Resurrection. And these were splendid productions, making use of all the forms that Yeats would have uh, required. Dance, lighting, sound effects, movement, and, of course, the speaking of the text. And they were very successful indeed, dramatically, theatrically. Eileen Colgan, Sean Campion, Bren Conway were in them, they weren't necessarily actors associated with the Abbey. And Professor Flannery came from the United States and he directed several plays by Yeats around about the same time with Alwyn Fuere and David Heap in Purgatory. And we, and heard, we heard Alwyn mention those earlier. They're yes. obviously terrific productions. And uh, I sensed that the 
actors appreciated uh, Professor Flannery's understanding of the plays. Michael, uh, yep. those early days of, of Yeats and the Abbey, when you consider all that, I mean, do, do you think that his role as co-founder of the theatre influenced his plays for the better or not? I actually think the influences plays for the better. One of the things we might want to think about is the extent to which he was really interested in the Abbey Theatre as a national theatre, or rather, as he himself put it in the 1902-3 period, as a theatre of art, where he was looking for a medium through which he could experiment with the, with the kinds of experiments that were being practised in Paris, in Berlin, elsewhere on the European continent and indeed in London in the 1890s and the 1900s. That's not to discount the importance of national narrative or his engagement with the, both the folklore and the mythical traditions of Ireland. But I would want to emphasise the fact that he was very concerned in his own work as a dramatist to in explore and investigate new ways of theatrical expression in correspondence with other playwrights of the period, such as Ibsen and, and Matterlink and uh, Villiers de Lille Adam and others. We do not see Shakespeare productions, nor indeed do we see Ibsen productions in those years, mm. uh, precisely, I think, because Yeats, Gregory, Singh and others were seeking to develop a distinctive Irish voice for uh, the modern stage. But I think that should not allow us to overlook the extent to which particularly Yeats is drawing in these influences. Uh, we even see Shakespearean influences in his Cuc first Cuchulain play, mm. where you have the fool and the blind man. So I, I think those aspects do need to be acknowledged as he develops this sense of a national theatre. What Tony has said is so true. The lines become blurred between performance and political daily life on the street. That's actually something that I think excited Yeats. Mm. The idea that the magic, mystical potencies, the energies that could be released in performance could actually impact on daily life, uh, the daily lives of ordinary citizens in, in Ireland at that time. And how do we see that impact, for instance, on Yeats's work with theatre, the, the changing, the evolving political climate in Ireland? Do we, can we read that in any way through his plays? Ambalia Strand ends with uh, the image of Cuchulain fighting the waves. Now, that is actually taken directly from Lady Gregory's Cuchulain of Merthemna, in which she includes one of the stories, the, the only son of Aoife. All the essential elements uh, from that story are present in Yeats's play. What Yeats is struggling with at that time, and I think this is the, the figure of Cuchulain, represents this in many ways, is in one sense, uh, it is the, the sense of a new order, a new order coming into Irish life. And as Yeats sees it at this time, this new order is rather dogmatic and in, in many respects rather petty bourgeois. And he sees this in the reaction that Singh has received to his first play, uh, In the Shadow of the Glen, where Arthur Griffith uh, specifically uh, targets it for uh, attack. It is also criticised by James Connolly. It's criticised by Maud Gaughan, as is Yeats's The King's Threshold, which actually is... I would argue, his most political play, his hunger strike play. 
on Balustrand is dealing with those pressures between the demands for a theatre of art, which is clearly what Annie Horniman in London wanted the Abbey Theatre to be, and the demands uh, for a theatre of nation, which is clearly what Arthur Griffith and indeed Pierce and others would, uh, would have been looking for and expecting. When you get to the aftermath of the Playboy riots in 1907, Yeats produces another version of one of the legends that uh, Lady Gregory had gathered, uh, that's Briacou's Feast. And this is uh, The Green Helmet, the, the 1908 performance. It's performed first in prose, then, uh, then in poetry, uh, becomes The Golden Helmet. It's Yeats's lament for essentially the collapse of the thin consensus between the more aesthetic uh, groups associated with the work of the Abbey Theatre and the more political element, the, the more strongly nationalist element that resulted in, the, in these riots and disturbances. But that play, The Green Helmet, is also a very strong echo of a play that Yeats actually saw in Paris in 1896, Alfred Jarry's play, Ubu Hua, Ubu the King, regarded as probably the first, what we would now call, surrealist play. And when Yeats, uh, he, he writes about this at the end of his volume, The Tragic Generation, where he says that he stood up for the play. There was a riot, essentially, uh, in the aftermath, or at least a, a severe disturbance um, took place in the aftermath of the performance of Ubu the King. Yeats defended it, but he also lamented it because he, he saw it as inaugurating what he felt was that we were entering into a new age of comedy where the old tragedies, the old sense of the tragic that I suppose goes back to Schiller and ultimately back, of course, to Sophocles and to, to ancient Greek drama, would struggle to win an audience. What was his line uh, after this, the, the savage god? Um, after this, the savage god, yes. Tony, a Japanese no theatre is something that has been long associated with Yeats. What mm -hmm. is this exactly and why was he so drawn to it? Yeah, I think there was a reaction by Yeats against the prevailing theatre, which had always, always been strong in him. But I think after the Playboy riots, he went into a further mode of withdrawal, if you like. And he actually went out of Ireland for a number of years and shared a cottage with Ezra Pound in England. And Yeats was, was writing his autobiography. He was working on Lady Gregory's visions and beliefs. And Ezra Pound was working on the no manuscripts of, of the American scholar Ernest Fenelosa. Yeats, as he worked on them, was going from Lady Gregory's visions and beliefs in the west of Ireland to these medieval Japanese plays. And what they had in common was a meeting between the living and the dead, between the natural and the supernatural. And that was what Western theatre would not, did not provide, not, in, not in, in, at that time. It, 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 realism was the dominant mode. And I think he seized on the opportunity. And he talks about that in all his commentary. He said, these legends put me in mind of Croke Patrick and Schlieffnamon and so on. He wanted to go further with that. It wasn't enough that the fairy child would step into the, the cottage and so on. He wanted to go away <laughs> with the fairy hand. And it's interesting something in contemporary writing that I think the Irish language poets and dramatists have been much more successful at. Nuala Nigonal with her Woman of the Fairy Fort and Eilish Nguivla in her plays and so on. Well, 
that Gaelic tradition wasn't available to Yeats, but he was aware of it, as right through with Frank O'Connor. And so he, he took these plays, and if you like, he, he Irished them to, them to a degree. Uh, he translated them in that. He said it wasn't the no-drama, it was based on the no-drama. If, if we blur politics in the stage, here it blurs life and death, as Alwyn Fuere was saying, where you meet these people in The Dreaming of the Bones, it turns out the two of them are ghosts, uh, but they're ghosts of Dermot and Dervagilla. But the other person in it is, is coming from the post office, is coming from Easter 1916. So it wasn't a retreat in that sense. Uh, to me, the no, not only it offered him the chance to deal with Irish history, where you wouldn't just talk about it, but you could put on stage simultaneously these medieval lovers and a very contemporary young Irish revolutionary, and they would have a dialogue. And it also was a mobile possibility. It freed him from the proscenium theatre. A lot of the productions I've seen have been site-specific. The production that Michael Scott did in the basement of the RHA gallery, which I'd never forgotten. We were led from place to place. Yeats wanted to restore intimacy to the theatre. He didn't want artificial lighting. He didn't want distance. This form of drama enabled him to create depth. I, I love the phrase, the deeps of mind, that it was able to draw people in to a heightened state of consciousness. I mean, Yeats, there's an interesting dialogue in my book on the revival with Conor McPherson, where we talk about what is the difference between Irish and English drama? And Connor says, well, in English drama, they want to do social arrangements. You know, they want to say, organise society. In our, so it's, so it's um, hor horizontal. In Irish theatre, it's vertical. We want to go up to God and down into the dirt. And, you know, you think of the Gili concert and you think of how true that is. The Gili concert is striving for transcendence, mm. but it has these drunken reprobates. Um, the Onbolia Strand... Uh, all right, it has the heroic Cucullin and Elisic Connor, but it has the fool and the blind man, and they're, they're just lowlifes who want to steal food out, out of it. So I think Yeats said he described his search for this theatre form as like a bird. He said, although it flies far from home looking for its food, it never forgets that it's going to wing its way back. So I think it was to, to find a way of dramatising the encounter between the living and the dead. Christopher, those elements of ritual, dance and design within Yeats's work. He brought a great deal into the Irish theatre apart from his own texts. I mean, he, he was really conscious of those other textures within the possibilities of theatre. He did bring a great deal into the Irish theatre and the pity is that more people aren't able to gain access to that and it's partly because of the fault of the managements in not rising to the challenge. But uh, the Gate Theatre in what I suppose was its heyday, the 1940s and 50s, and the first time the Gate did a Yeats play was in, I think it was 1941, they did The King of the Great Clock Tower. In the Gaiety, as part of a larger programme, I could not have imagined anyone in the Abbey at that time, except when Yeats was present, to take such interest and give such consideration to all the elements that were required to do a presentation uh, of the King of the Great Clock, uh, Clock Tower. The part of the, the Queen, which is a non-speaking part, was played by a dancer called Mary Poskwalski. She played the part that 
Ninette Valois had created in the Abbey, Michal MacLeamore, of course, played the king, and other people who were dancers as well as actors were in the production. And what you saw on the stage was two enormous, like 20-foot-high, copper discs which were to do with the clock, with archaic symbols written all round them. And the dance took place on the floor. And there was music uh, written by Tyrrell Pine, who was a, a composer attached to the gate at that time. And I think to a very popular audience in the Gaiety Theatre that probably did not come in to see that play, it made a big impact. Do, do we have any idea of what the original the, the very early productions were like in the Abbey, what oh, they yes, might have looked yes. like. Yes, they're all recorded, and Yates would have been present for most of them, wouldn't he? He would. Uh, well, the one discussion I've had about it was that uh, Yates's daughter, Anne, uh, was brought in by her father to the Abbey uh, in 1938, specifically to design... Uh, purgatory. He obviously rated her artistic, the Yeats' artistic ability and she once described to me uh, uh, what it was. It's described in Richard Cave's edition as well. Very simple. There was a white sheet towards the back of the stage with a rectangle cut out as the window with a ladder behind that, that the people could climb up to and there was the stone, there, there, there was the tree and I think that that a uh, very Beckettian. Major uh, Lankian. Major Lankian. Yes. But the fact that, that Beckett was in the audience, as we now know from the collected letters, for that production. Roy Foster mentions in his biography that Yeats wanted, he wanted to get rid of clutter, stuff, naturally stuff, to clear the stage and have a line, like a line in a Japanese painting, have that kind of thing that would or the image of the hawk. I remember when Anne Yates said she'd done a painting of her father for the Trinity 400. I said, but you're not a portrait painter. What did you do? She said, I represented him as a hawk about to pounce, which seems to me about right. Uh, Christopher, of course, Michal MacLeamore was brought into the Abbey to perform in uh, Yates. Yes, uh, he, he played uh, in... Uh, Deirdre with Jean Ford's Robertson and that was greatly resented by the Abbey players because they were given billing but apparently they were splendid in, in the parts but in the Countess Kathleen in the gate there was quite the opposite of what you might have expected from the design concepts usually uh, taken on by Hilton Edwards and me Michal MacLeamore, it was a very over-designed play. It was full of clutter. The designer was Michael Hurley, who was, I think, the best designer that we had in Ireland at that time, and he designed the Countess Kathleen in a kind of crepuscular, pre-Raphaelite mode, dark skies studded with silver stars, perhaps kind of oriental as well, because the demons, the demoniac merchants' costumes were like something out of a Persian manuscript. You get these sort of medieval images from the East and from 50 years ago in Britain on the stage at the same time. And Michal MacLeamore as Ailil was in a long yellow robe like some mystical saint stepped out of a stained glass window by Rossetti. You know, it was 
hyper hyper one, design. One can imagine it. And he had uh, an ins- he was carrying a stringed instrument on which his fingers strayed from time to time. I don't think any music came out of it. And I was a student at the time, and he came forward and was the set disappeared and he was lighted up, and he recited the song of Wandering Angus, and I said to myself. That's not in this play. That's that's a lyric poem. And it worked terribly well, it seems to me, in hindsight. Eileen could have conjured up the ideas in uh, I went out to the Hazelwood because a fire was in my head and all that. So immense consideration was given by Hilton Edwards and me, Hall, Gilmore, to the kind of presentation they were going to do when they selected a play by Yeats. You mentioned uh, the dancer Ninette de Valois, Chris, and uh, Richard Cave, who edited the selected plays of Yeats, has, has written about her, obviously also about Yeats. Here he is explaining how he came to the work of Yeats, in particular to his theatre. I was doing research into a Terence Gray, who turned out to be the cousin of Ninette de Valois, and I discovered that she had regularly worked with Gray in Cambridge over the same period that she'd worked for Yeats at the Abbey. So I went to see her, and she was interested in the production work and encouraged me to do more. It's all evolved from there. Um, The Cambridge Festival Theatre, that was run by Terence Gray, had begun to stage some Yeats plays because he was very anxious to do a kind of alternative repertoire. And from the start, he'd had the very advanced idea for the time of incorporating Ninette de Valois and the senior pupils at her dance school in his productions, and she became a kind of movement director on most of the things that he did. And a friend, Gordon Bottomley, told Yeats that they were about to do one of his plays at the festival, and so he went along saw it and stayed overnight with Terence Gray and asked to meet Ninette de Valois, and they did. And according to her, they sat in the gloomy bar and he said to her, you will come to Dublin and stage my plays and you will found a dance school. And she said, yes. She founded a school there, helped Yeats to stage several of his dance plays. And um, what she did was bring over her senior pupil and established her as the chief teacher in the dance school. And she came over and took a week of classes and usually during that period devised dance performances which went into a triple bill at the Abbey. And then they started incorporating some of Yeats's dance plays. He began writing um, the first of a number of dance plays. I think it would be wrong to say an imitation of no drama because Japanese theatre, because he always, with the influences on his work, he took it, he understood it, but then he moved beyond it to make it something wholly personal. And once he'd found that form, he began pushing it in all kinds of directions. The first play was at the Hawk's Well, though it's probably closest to Japanese drama of all the dance plays. The subject matter is is decidedly Irish. It's about Cahoolan 
um, really coming into his own, making the choice to be a hero. And it involves a kind of duel with a dancer in the role of a hawk, a role that de Valois played uh, in the 30s, but initially when the play was performed, it was actually danced by a Japanese performer called Michio Ito. And they had masks and uh, specially commissioned music. Um, but Yeats was never, never really satisfied with early stagings of his plays, and particularly with the dance element. Nora McGuinness, for example, performed in a staging of The Only Jealousy of Ema. She was very fond of dancing, but she wasn't actually a professional dancer. She was an artist. But Yeats somehow persuaded her to dress up and cover herself with gold paint and appear as the spirit dancer in uh, The Only Jealousy of Ymir. But again, he wasn't particularly satisfied, which is why finding de Valois, with her Irish roots, with her interest in expressionistic dance was just a godsend for him. The problem initially was that she said while she would dance anything he asked of her, she would never speak on stage. And some of the roles in the plays already written were for speaker dancers. This posed a problem, but Yeats was determined to go ahead with working with her, so he completely redrafted The Only Jealousy of Emer as Fighting the Waves. And it really was quite a remarkable production, that, in 1929, because it also fulfilled another of his theatrical ambitions, to create something international. Because here we had a, a Japanese form, the music was by an American, Georges Antoy. The masks were by a Dutchman, Hildo Krop. The cast was Irish. Fighting the Waves has the most fantastic score by Antoy, and the thing is that requires a huge orchestra. I suppose they only managed to bring it all together once at the Abbey for a week. They've revived... The Only Jealous of Vimeo, but they haven't revived Fighting the Waves since. Um, de Valois was determined that Yeats's work should be known outside Ireland, and she arranged for a performance of Fighting the Waves to take place as part of an afternoon of her work with her students at the Lyric Theatre in Hammersmith in 1930. It says a lot for her that she had injured her, her foot the previous week and she declined to appear in one of the pieces but she did go ahead and uh, and dance in the Yates. Her commitment to Yates was just extraordinary. They each recognised, though he was much older than her at the time, I think she recognised the ambition in him and that together they could actually advance both their art forms. In 1934 she'd said the demands on her time in because she was now with a fully established dance company, the, the Sadler's Wells Ballet, that would eventually become the Royal Ballet. She had to give her time to that, and he wrote a kind of farewell play for her, The King of the Great Clock Tower. And in all the other dance plays prior to this, the dance is either preceded or uh, followed by one of the speaking roles actually describing what has been going on and what it might signify to that particular character. Now, the interesting thing with The King of the Great Clock Tower is that 
There is no such description. He by then had seen de Valois perform and knew how she could communicate with an audience. And he gives her the second half of the play. The other characters are marginalised to the outskirts of the stage and she takes over, makes that space her own, just shows the full extent of her artistry. I mean, it's an extraordinary gift from one artist to another. Richard Cave there. Michael Mcateer, um more than a century on from the first plays, what is Yeats's international reputation as a dramatist today? Uh, the, the understanding or the appreciation of Yeats as part of European avant-garde drama, I would say, is increasing in continental Europe. Um, I think as we begin to see more performances of his work and begin to understand his relations to uh, people like Ibsen, uh, Matterlink, and actually the German Expressionist movement, uh, I think this sense of Yeats as a central figure in the, the European avant-garde will increase. Early on in the programme, Kelly Hughes and Alwyn Fuerre said we should underestimate Yeats, the dramatist at our pearl. Tony, should we be seeing more productions of the plays? Is there a scope for a strong restaging and reimagining of, of Yeats's theatre work? There is indeed. I mean, I would cite as precedent for that the five-year experiment that James Flannery did in the Peacock Theatre from 1989 to 1994. And that was the period when Alwyn Fuere was playing the roles that, that she discussed. And just to take one example, the, the, the music for those productions was provided by Bill Whelan. And he developed a really elaborate and very impressive scores uh, for those productions. And uh, several years after the last production, he moved to Riverdance. You can't have one without the other. You really can't. If you want to have the commercial development they benefit from the more avant-garde, especially with the artists working in it. And the Irish theatre is impoverished in that way. We have the performers, we have the dancers, we have the musicians, we have the confluence of those arts on the Irish stage with people like Michael Keegan Dolan. Um, I think it behooves our theatres to give them space on Yeats's plays. Uh, Christopher Fitzsimon, one thing that struck me is that Tyrone Guthrie, and you've mentioned this, chose Yeats's version of Oedipus over any other English language translation for major open stage productions in the US and Canada in the 1960s. He saw that, he saw the power of Yeats's work. I presume that you would also like to see more productions of the plays. Yes, and we've been talking as if these little chamber plays that are remote, spiritual and ideal are only appreciated in enclosed circles. But it's not the case, because his uh, Sophocles, more versions than translations, are appreciated in the English language all over the world. And when Tyrone Guthrie uh, was looking for a version to do in the 2,000-seat theatre at Stratford-on-Avon in Canada that would be appreciated by an enormous public. It wasn't just one night of 2000s. It was night after night. Uh, Other productions were done in Minneapolis and places like that. Guthrie found the choruses so devastatingly rich and intense that he went for the Yates when they made the final decision. And he also had a lurking suspicion, I think, that Yates's condensation and compression of the story 
would make it more immediately accessible to the enormous audience. Um, he also liked the dignified, bare prose of the dialogue and, of course, the grand austerity of the, of the verse choruses. The more Yeats productions so for you. Yeats has been seen by very, very large audiences throughout the English-speaking world. Christopher Fitzsimon, Michael McAteer, Tony Roach, thank you all very much. Anthony Roach's most recent book, The Irish Dramatic Revival, 1899 to 1939, is published by Bloomsbury. Christopher Fitzsimon's many books include The Abbey Theatre, The First Hundred Years, published by Thames and Hudson, and The Boys, published by Gill and Macmillan. And Michael McAteer is author of the book Yeats and European Drama, published by Cambridge University Press. Good night. <laughs>